Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them with me, please, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, back into Paul's introduction or his, his thanksgiving. That's typically how he begins the letter. Thanks, uh, a time of thanksgiving to God for what he identifies that is good within a church, uh, a church that he's writing to, and that's how he begins the book of Colossians. It's rather actually one of his lengthier thanksgiving introductions. We will be back into verse 5, the last half of verse 5 and verse 6 this morning. But before we get there, um, let me begin by telling you a familiar story. You know this story. You know the characters of this story. It's about a couple uh, who had a great marriage, wonderful marriage. They wake up one morning, one day, and they find themselves in um, a perfect place. Uh, The conditions are great. Uh, The company is great. They have one another. They're surrounded by beauty. They're surrounded by all that they could ever want, all that they could ever need. And all these things that they're surrounded with draw their affections to God. And they get up, as would have been their custom, and they work. And they tend the ground, and they tend the plants, and they tend the animals. And at every moment of their day, they're reminded more and more and more of God's goodness to them. He's provided for them. He's given them, given them things to enjoy for pure pleasure. He's blessed them with each other, and He calls that very good. They are the only couple in history to have ever tasted a perfect marriage. They're the only couple in human history to have ever lived in a perfect place, and we know their names. They're Adam and Eve. They lived in a garden called Eden that God had blessed them uh, with. It was a gift to them, a place of immense beauty and peace and perfection. Their relationship to one another was uncorrupted and without sin. No arguments. Can you imagine that? No disagreements. Perfect harmony. More than that, they had a perfect relationship with God. They knew God, both of them, intimately. Their affections for one another drove their affections for God. Every plant that they worked and considered reminded them of God's goodness shown to them. Until this specific day, when a different sort of critter comes into their lives. This critter can talk. He's described as a serpent. He's wicked beyond measure. Likely, they've never encountered him before, but this particular day, they've encountered him as he's approached them. And in the middle of their perfect marriage and their perfect paradise, with their affections complete for God, enjoying his company, this wicked serpent begins to turn their attention away from God. So perhaps for the first time, their eyes are actually turning into themselves, and instead of the beauty and glory and grandeur of God and all that He's given them. And in looking upon themselves and taking their eyes off of God, this wicked serpent begins to feed them lies. And the worst part of the whole story is not necessarily that the wicked serpent is there feeding them lies. The worst part is that they begin to believe them. And all of this garden and all of this perfection and all of this beauty, there stands this One tree with this certain kind of fruit that God said 
you shall not touch or, or eat or have anything to do with. Everything else in the garden is yours, but that tree, don't eat of it. And this wicked serpent begins to tell them lies to entice them to that tree and that fruit. And what do they do? They believe the lie of that wicked serpent instead of the truth of God. In this particular day, when everything was perfect, they eat and they disobey. And in an instant, the Bible tells us their eyes are opened and they recognize that they are naked and they run and hide when God shows up. God comes in the cool of the day to walk through the garden as apparently was His custom to fellowship with Adam and Eve in perfect intimacy and perfect relationship. Only this time, everything is different and Adam and Eve aren't found ready and willingly waiting for God. They're found hiding. And in this garden of, of beauty is all of a sudden shrouded in spiritual darkness and God finally finds them and says to them some of the most haunting words in all of the Bible, what is this that you have done? In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul really highlights what took place there because it's the same thing that takes place in all of, of humanity since that day in the garden. Romans chapter, eight, uh, chapter 1, excuse me, verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the issue there. They're unrighteous and their unrighteousness suppresses the truth. Clouds it and hides it and, and puts up hindrances and obstacles. We'll drop down into that same chapter, Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And therefore worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. That's a description of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve's fall. They believed a lie instead of the truth. And they, that, that word Paul uses is an important word. They exchanged the truth for a lie. And then in every other human account we see where sin shows up throughout the Bible, it's the same issue. The truth is exchanged for a lie. And the Creator is disobeyed. And sin takes root. And the truth is clouded and lies begin to abound and people are lost in their corruption. So until Christ comes back, that's the great battle, isn't it? Believing a lie or believing the truth. That's what you and I are always tempted with. Every single day, we are tempted with believing a lie instead of the truth. We're, we're tempted... To replace the gospel with something else. Perhaps we're tempted to replace the gospel with our own works. Or our own morality. Or our own spiritual discipline. Or our own intelligence. As Christians, we're more prone to add something to the gospel. We're not gospel alone people. We're tempted to be gospel plus people. Gospel plus something. 
I want to be right with God, so I have to believe the gospel and do this. Or I have to believe the gospel and do that. Or I have to believe the gospel and understand this. We're always tempted to either suppress the gospel, hide the gospel, add to the gospel, or reject the gospel. That's the battle we face. And that wicked serpent in the Garden of Eden who still is very much alive and active today would be content with your Bible reading and your prayer time and your church attendance so long as you get the gospel wrong. And he would be content with making the world feel moral and the world feel good and the world feel healthy and the world feel right and the world feel satisfied as long as they get the gospel wrong. That is the threat that is plaguing the church at Colossae. It plagued Adam and Eve. It plagues every other person of God in the Bible. It plagues the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 1. It plagues us today. It's the same threat. And Paul is writing to address that threat. The whole book of Colossians is to attack this false teaching that says, in its most simple way, that Christ and the gospel aren't sufficient enough. The gospel is not sufficient enough for your problems. The gospel is not sufficient enough for your understanding. The gospel is not sufficient enough for your life. It's not sufficient enough for your, your marriage or your parenting or your relationships or your job. It, you need to add something to it. You need to do more. That's the temptation. That's the false teaching that this Colossian church is facing. And Paul writes to say, Christ alone is sufficient. The gospel alone is sufficient for all that you need. And that's where we pick up in Colossians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. You remember in verse 3 and 4, he's praising God. And he's praising God for the good things that he's heard about in this church. Verse 4, he's heard about their faith, and he's heard about their love. And that faith and love is built on the hope that he talks about in verse 5. So there's this Christian triad that we see throughout the New Testament. Faith, hope, and love. It's found here. And Paul says, I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love. And I know it's because of the hope that you have. And I praise God for it. But his whole point today in verse 6 mainly is to say, the only reason you have those good things is because the gospel is sufficient for them. You don't need anything else. You don't need works. You don't need any additions. You don't need intelligence you need the gospel so look with me in verse 5 and let's begin to attempt to unpack what Paul says here the last half of verse 5 he says of this the hope that he's just referenced of this hope you have heard before in the word of the truth the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. It's hard to um, expound everything that needs to be expounded concerning the subject of the gospel, but we'll do our best this morning. We'll begin with... Uh, Paul's reminder. That's where he begins. He wants them to remember and, and convey to them that the gospel alone is sufficient. He begins by, by desiring that they remember the gospel's powerful coming to them. The gospel came to you and it had 
it had a work to do among you and it accomplished that work. So remember, he specifically in verse 5 ties the gospel and their hearing of the gospel to the hope that he's just referenced. In other words, what he's saying is, you have no idea about the hope of heaven if it weren't for the gospel coming to you. So right then and there, we see this beautiful product of the saving message of Jesus Christ. What is it? It tells you of heaven. It tells you of salvation. It tells you of eternity. It tells you of the forgiveness of sin and the pardon of your guilt and your reconciliation to God. No other message, no other work in all of history can guarantee you life with God in heaven except the Gospel. The Gospel alone is sufficient for your spiritual life. The only way you and I know that we even need a Savior and much more have a Savior is because God in His grace sent the Gospel to us. Because God in His grace put it in the heart of some brother and sister to share with us the saving realities of Jesus. You've heard of this hope. This hope that's laid up for you in heaven. This hope of an inheritance. This hope of eternal life. This hope of perfection. This hope of of satisfaction in God. This hope of forgiveness of sin. You've heard of it only because the word of truth came to you. And told you. If you're tempted. To add something to the gospel. Do what Paul instructs here. And remember it coming to you. The first time it came. And the first time you heard. And the first time you believed. When you heard the beautiful realities. That your sin can be forgiven and washed away. No other message gives life like the gospel. Take note what Paul uses to describe, the phrase Paul uses to describe the gospel. He calls it in verse 5, the word of truth. At the end of verse 6, he'll call it the grace of God in truth. Because at its very nature, this gospel message is truth. Hold that up into Paul's theme of this letter, because it's expressed that way to contrast the false teaching that's plaguing these Uh, Colossian believers. People will propagate lies after lie after lie upon your life. There's only one truth and it is the Gospel. If anything has changed in human history up to our point today, it's only that these lies have abounded and are more accessible. You and I are peppered with them every moment of every day. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Los Angeles. I've been a few times. And when you drive the streets of Los Angeles, one, you're risking your life. But two, there's advertisements everywhere. They're painted on the side of buildings. They're they're strung up as banners. And I'm sure it's that way in many major cities. And most all of them have a promise. Some sort of solution to life's problem. Or some problem in life. Now, with, with the advancement of technology and, and things like that, it's no secret, those advertisements invade our privacy all the time. With tips and tricks and advice and opinions and worldly sermons, all claiming to benefit the hearer. 
and to address your need and to, to provide some solution. I find it ironic that you can walk into the average bookstore, go to a certain section of that bookstore, and find hundreds of self-help books, all for the same issue, all claiming to be the answer, which tells us none of them are the answer. That's the world we live in. Solutions abound. The problem is none of them work. None of them are sufficient. None of them address your greatest need and my greatest need. Except one. The saving message of Jesus Christ. For what is your greatest need and what is my greatest need? It's not money. It's not a diploma or a degree or a stable career or a perfect spouse or perfect children. Our greatest need is forgiveness of sin. Our greatest need is to be made right with God. To be justified by the work of Christ. To be made righteous by the work of Christ. That is our greatest need. It always has been. It always will be. Even in eternity, we will celebrate that our greatest need has been met. We will recognize and understand and know that our greatest need has only been met in Christ. For it is the Gospel alone that instructs our failures and our fears and our sins and our disappointments. It's only the Gospel that addresses those things. It's only the Gospel that tells you of a hope where your sin will be no more and perfection will be enjoyed forever. As I was thinking about passages that communicate the Gospel, I thought of the second chapter of the book of Colossians. Flip over there if you would with me. Let's share this, these verses. Verse 13, 14, and 15. What a beautiful picture of, of Christ's saving work. Paul writes and he says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, Jesus having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Your greatest need is to be made right with God and there is the way you are made right with God. All your trespasses forgiven. And how were they forgiven? Nailed to the cross of Christ. And you know what that means? You no longer stand guilty. You no longer live, have to live under shame. You no longer have to live with regret. Because He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to op open shame. That's the message of the Gospel. It alone addresses our greatest need. Another passage I want to read to you from Romans chapter 3. 
Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an appeasement by His blood to be received by faith. That's the message we need. That's the message that gives life. That's the message that instills hope. That's the message that transforms the heart. Not the lies that abound in the world or the false teachings that threaten the church. That message and that message alone in church, we ought to cling to it with desperation. Ray Ortland wrote a little book called The Gospel. It's about the Gospel. And he wrote this in, in that book. He said, The hope of the Gospel is far more than a psychological boost to help us ramp up for Monday morning. And that's often how we treat it. The truth is, the Gospel is a real message of redemption. A real message of salvation. A real message of forgiveness. A real message of being made right with God. Gospel not only addresses our greatest need, church, it also gives us our greatest gift. You know what that is? God. You are saved. You are forgiven. You are promised eternity. All so that you might have God. The best thing about the Gospel is not simply just forgiveness of sin or pardon of guilt or a promised eternity in heaven. But it's what all those things mean together. We're made right with God. That is the truth that you and I possess. That's the gift given to the church. And that is what Paul would remind these believers. You have the hope of being with God because it came to you in the word of truth. Not in the false teachings that threaten you. Not in the vain, vain promises and lies of the world. Not in the lie of the wicked serpent. Only in the word of truth, the gospel. So he first calls it the word of truth in verse 5. He also, I want you to take note of this. He uses some past tense language to declare that the Gospel's already come to them. Of this hope you have heard before in the word of truth, the Gospel, which has already come to you. One thing to highlight here is that the Gospel is always sent by God. And any time it's proclaimed, it is by the grace of God alone. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one comes to Me unless the Father first draws Him. Romans chapter 10 talks about the need to hear the Word of God preached. And it asks the question, who will, will go and preach unless they are first Sent. God is the one who sends the message of salvation, who sends forth the word of the truth. But it's also important to note that when the gospel is shared as a reminder to these believers in verse 5, Paul's not sharing anything new with them. I remind you of a message you already know. A message that already has come to you. A message that must be constant in your life. You don't need a new solution, a new answer, a new message. 
You need to remember that which has come to you by God's grace. The word of truth which saves you. So is your marriage hard? Are your finances low? Are your children rebellious? Are you, is your job taxing and draining? Is your life chaotic? Is sin abounding in your life? Is confusion increasing in your mind? You don't need some new answer to those things. You need an old answer. A fresh reminder of the Gospel. Because it's the Gospel that shapes and heals our marriages. It's the Gospel that defines how we parent now. It's the Gospel that shows us how to even view our finances and the jobs that we work. The Gospel is our answer. Moving on, he goes on in verse 6. He, again, he wants them to understand and know the sufficiency of the Gospel. So he reminds them, it came to you, it brought you hope, it transformed your life, it informed how you are to live. Remember that. Remember the Gospel's first coming and the impact that it had upon your life. Now verse 6, see that the Gospel goes forth into the whole world and bears fruit. It's an active gospel. And it's claiming victory all over the place. It's extending to the furthest reaches and touching hearts and changing lives. John Calvin made a good point about this. He said, it's not that we believe the gospel simply because others believe it. We believe the gospel because it's true. But when we learn that others believe it, it aids our own faith. And that seems to be Paul's point here. The Gospel came to you and you believed it as you should because it's the Word of truth and it had a powerful effect on your life. It made you right with God. But be strengthened because it didn't only just have a powerful effect on you, it's having a powerful effect everywhere it goes. When Paul uses that phrase in verse 6, indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit, when he uses that phrase whole world, he doesn't mean every person, he means every place. Every place that the Gospel goes, it bears fruit and it increases. We get to see that even today. What happens when persecution, persecution arises in China? The gospel bears fruit and it increases, and people are saved. What happens when the gospel and Christians are persecuted in Iraq or Iran or Saudi Arabia or Northern Africa? People are saved. There's no amount of human persecution, there's no amount of spiritual persecution that hinders the gospel's advancement. Paul says you need to be reminded and you need to know that the Gospel alone is sufficient. Do that first by remembering its powerful work among you, but do it second by seeing that nothing stops it. It goes forth and where it goes, it has work accomplished. The Gospel goes into the darkest corners of the darkest parts of the world and it saves people. It has a worldwide influence. 
And we celebrate that, don't we? We celebrate when we hear of new brothers and sisters born into this family in parts of the world where we've never been and people we've never met or known. We celebrate, even though our brothers and sisters are persecuted around the world, we celebrate the advancement of the gospel in their churches. How does a brother or a sister or a church around the world be rated and persecuted and shot at one Sunday and then meet together the next Lord's Day with even more zeal and new converts and, and, and more sincere worship? How is that possible? It's because the Gospel has its powerful effect in all places that it goes. And there's nothing that stands in its way. Nothing that prevents the Gospel from bearing fruit in church. We celebrate that. We look at those stories and we look at that testimony of the power and sufficiency of the Gospel and we say, praise God, that strengthens my faith and that fills me with joy and God must be glorified because of it. I cut out an illustration that Charles Spurgeon used in a sermon where he talks about a man that he knew named Mr. Haslam. And Mr. Haslam is sharing his testimony. And he says this, I do not remember all that I said when I was converted, but I felt a wonderful light and joy coming into my soul. Whether it was something in my words or in my manner or my look, I do not know. But all of a sudden, a local preacher who happened to be in the congregation stood up and putting his arms up in the air, he shouted, This person is converted. This person is converted. Hallelujah. And in another sudden moment, his voice was lost in the shouts and praises of three or four hundred other people in the congregation. And instead of rebuking this extraordinary cry, as I should have done in a former time, I joined in the outburst of praise. And I gave out the doxology, singing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow, which the other people sung with heart and voice over and over and over again. Mr. Haslam tells of this conversion story sitting in this service where somehow or another it's written all over his face that he has been born again. And what's the, what's the reaction to, of the church around him? They sing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow over and over and over again. Why? Because we celebrate the sufficiency of the Gospel. And that it goes forth into every soul that it desires and converts and saves and reconciles to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow that this Gospel that Paul writes of in verse 6 went out into the whole world and bore fruit and increased. Because by that same method it came to you and I. Now, Paul does not specifically say what he has in mind when he uses the phrase bearing fruit. But we know by the immediate context some of the things that he has in mind. 
in, in the immediate context, he has to mean faith and love and hope as he's referenced in verse 4 and 5. As the gospel goes forth into the world, into new and unreached places, it's bearing the fruit of faith and bearing the fruit of Christian love and bearing the fruit of hope in heaven, just as it did among you guys. We know that he means most certainly, even though he doesn't spell it out, it bears the fruit of conversion. It's saving the lost. It's causing people to be born again. It's bringing them to salvation. Likewise, when he uses the word, it's increasing, he doesn't say exactly what he means. Perhaps he's hinting at sanctification. It increases its work. It continues to to shape and to mold and to enhance faith and love and hope and touch the human heart and change the human life. Again, I think at the very basic level, he means it's advancing more and more. It's like a wildfire that catches in one person's soul and spreads to another. And before you know it, a whole people are taken over for love of God and love of one another and they are living in the righteousness of Christ, praising and worshiping God. That's something the church celebrates. That's something we rejoice in. But thirdly, real quick, also in verse 6, He's reminded them of the Gospel initially coming to them. Remember, it's sufficient because it came to you and brought you hope and it brought you the message of salvation, the word of truth that you might be saved. But also know it's sufficient because it's going into the whole world, everywhere around you, and it's bearing fruit, it's converting souls, and it's increasing in its reach, and it's increasing in its power. Also know it's sufficient because it's still working among you to this day. Indeed, in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Present tense. Does among you. Past tense. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. In other words, Paul says, know that the Gospel is sufficient because it worked and it keeps on working. Because it's constant and it's consistent. And it's still forming Christ's likeness in you. And it's still increasing your hope. And it's still increasing your faith. And it's still increasing your love. And it's still revealing to you the beauty and the glory of God. Nothing else does that. Nothing else. It's this endless wellspring of life that is always at work in the believer's soul. What's the solution to your greatest need of salvation? It's the Gospel. And what's the solution to every other need you face in this life since conversion? It's the Gospel. For the Gospel puts everything into perspective. The Gospel reminds us of what's really important. The Gospel stands up as this beautiful beacon of forgiveness when the enemy attacks us with guilt and shame. When failure abounds in our lives. What do we do when our spouse fails us, our children 
fail us. We fail ourselves. What do we do? We thank God that no one will ever pluck us out of His hand. That once our sins are forgiven and we are made right, we are made right forever. The Gospel is not just a one moment, one time at the beginning of your Christian faith kind of, kind of message. It is the entire Christian faith. It's not elementary in the sense that we hear it and we put it away as that's something that happens at the beginning. It's something that we live on. It's the only foundation we stand on. The Gospel alone is what gets us through this life into eternity. Remembering beyond all understanding that God loves us. And God has pardoned our guilt. God has brought us into a right relationship with Him through His Son. That message is sufficient. And we need to war against the wicked serpent who would tempt us to think otherwise. And we need to cling to this one hope that we have and plead with God, help us believe it. Give me faith. Help me to hold it. For it is truly all that I have. So it works. It keeps on working in our lives. It changes our relationships. It changes our worship. It changes our problem solving. It changes our worldview. It changes how we spend our time. It changes what our hobbies are. It changes how we spend our money. It changes everything about us. And it keeps bringing us into Christ's likeness. Remember, Paul's exhortation here is remember that the Gospel is sufficient. It was sufficient in the beginning. It's sufficient to reach into the world. And it's sufficient for your life now as it keeps working, as it keeps bearing fruit, as it keeps increasing among you. Oh church, we have to hold the Gospel. We have to remember its powerful work in our lives. We have to celebrate every time it advances in this world. We have to acknowledge that it keeps working in us today and tomorrow and the next day. One last thing. The Gospel must be applied to you. It's not mere intellect or abstract understanding. There's some words that Paul uses here that's important to bring out of the passage. The first one we highlighted, it has come to you. And the Gospel must first come to you. It must first be proclaimed over you. It must be shared to you. So if you're an unbeliever and you hear the Gospel, you hear that Christ died for your sins to forgive you, to bring you into a right relationship with Him, then praise God because you're hearing the Gospel and you can be saved. But Christian, remember... We are the ones tasked with the, the message of reconciliation. And people will not believe and be saved unless they've heard. And they will not hear unless somebody takes it to them. The Gospel must come to you and we must take it. Second, from this passage we understand the Gospel must be heard. 
You must hear it with your ears. It must be proclaimed with your mouth. And thirdly, it must be understood. As you hear the end of verse 6, he talks about the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. We cannot understand the Gospel apart from God's regeneration and help. So we pray to that end. But understanding goes far beyond just your mind. It implies a submission. It implies belief. The Gospel must come to you. You must hear it. And you must believe it. You must submit your life to it. Humbly and truly acknowledging that you are a sinner. But that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when you're saved, Christ holds you for all eternity and gives you everything you need to walk with God. This message is sufficient, church. It never gets old. It should never get old. It is the very bedrock of our faith. It's the constant fountain spring of our faith. It's what informs every heartache and every joy. It's what motivates thanksgiving within our lives. It's what induces passion in our worship. It's what enables us to walk with God. Let us remember it's coming to us. Let us remember its powerful work in the world around us. Let us remember and know its continued powerful work within us today. I hope and I pray that if you do not know this Gospel or this Savior, Jesus Christ, you will come to know Him that you will experience the very first thing, the hope of heaven. That you will come to see that there is a Creator. And you have to give an account to Him. And there's nothing you can do to make things right. You cannot deal with your own guilt. Once you are guilty, you are forever guilty. But God loved you enough to send His Son to take your guilt and give you His innocence. That you might be a son or a daughter of God. You must hear and believe and be saved. Christian, fight the fight of being tempted to add something to this message. And remember that it alone is sufficient. It is all we need to share. It is all we need to stand on. It is what makes us right with God. Thank God for that. And then fight hard to hold on to it.